Welcome to the My Rules of Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the luxury of continuing my conversation with Matthew Gibson. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Tom. So two topics we didn't get to touch on was associated with your board game, which I'd like to talk about a little later. But first, I want to talk a little bit about introducing your son to role-playing and your kind of personal legacy with role-playing and how you translate that to your son's D&D game. That's a great question. Perhaps as a way of introduction, uh, and because this is a podcast that seems to enjoy uh, digressions. Um, <laughs> Always. <laughs> uh, the, the previous uh, podcast... Uh, not the previous one, sorry, the one even before that, where uh, your other friend was discussing his early campaign experiences mm. was once again spot on for mine as well. <laughs> and, and and I'll just give you one moment to illustrate that. I was, you know, I had barely played. I was already GMing, doing room monster, room monster, Monty Hall style dungeons. And so uh, I was about 15, and in my group was one of my brother's friends who was in university. Uh, anyway, so he, the story goes, he, the next session he comes, he says, so I was at university with a bunch of D&D players, and I said to them, hey, I killed a Jubilex on the weekend. And they looked at him and said, what do you mean, a Jubilex? And that was my first inkling that maybe I'd gone overboard because I just threw a Jubilex at them, which mm-hmm. is a god, right? Yes. It's not a Jubilex, it is the Jubilex. <laughs> And a bunch of seven or eight level characters killed it, right? Yes. That's the classic thing, right? Okay, now, guys, here's the treasure. (laughs) So uh, one of the important things about bringing my son into the game was I didn't want his experiences to be like that, even though, and what's interesting is that that's the natural temptation of the younger players. Yes. You're kind of robbing him of his childhood in this circumstance, right? I mean... If, if you're not going to make fumbling mistakes in the dark, how are you actually going to get to this thing? <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. <clears throat> I'll take it no further. Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, it's true, but I don't necessarily... I mean, I, I look back at that time and I laugh about it, but I'm also glad to have moved on, to have made that realisation that maybe we were overdoing it and, and let's, let's, get, let's get a bit more realistic here. Because when he first wanted to get into D&D, he just wanted to GM from the very beginning. And he wanted to get the books and start GMing. You know, mm. it's like, whoa, whoa, you have no idea what you're doing. You don't even know how to play the game. Uh, and they had this one session. They went to a cafe with some friends and he had some books. And they basically just, they rolled some characters and they randomly grabbed monsters from the monster manual and they fought them. Mm. And they kind of were having a good time, but they also did see the limitations of it. So he was very pleased when, you know, I said, look, I'll, I'm happy to run a campaign that way. At least you can learn the, how to how to GM, how the game plays, what you're looking at, and you know, whenever you're ready, you can take over. And I'll be happy to be just a player in your campaign. Hmm. And that then brings us to the situation where we find ourselves with Finn and his two friends who are still playing. There was another boy, but he's kind of in and out. Mm-hmm. And the quandary of the of the dungeon master of who is more than who is um has to do so many things in the gaming experience to get it right not just a whole bunch of technical things of knowing about the world and the system and the rules but trying to tailor the the whole play experience to meet the needs of the different players Mm. your friend was talking about uh murderous hobos Mm -hmm. for example right now that does it, it is a great 
description of so many early gaming experiences, and I have one in my group, and she is the archetypal murderous hobo. She liked she liked creating a character. Her character, she killed her own parents mm-hmm. to get them out of the picture. And she too, when she, as when a she teenager. Was very, yes. Very, very young. She's like, she said, yeah, I killed them when I was six years old. Very good. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so she, she, wants a, she wants no background mm-hmm. except death, except mm-hmm. death itself. And her sole goal is to go around killing things and taking their treasure. And this is a, this is a girl who, who loves to read fiction, right? Mm. So it's not like she doesn't like the narrative experience and the storytelling experience. And I'm prepared to offer that. I, I try to. And yet <laughs> what she really seems to want is just to go around killing stuff and taking their treasure. <laughs> so I have to obviously give us – she wants to play. That's what she's looking for. i got to give her some of that. Mm. Another one of the, the characters is uh, players is, is much more of a – I think she's mostly there for the social experience. She likes everyone's company. She doesn't want to do anything too mean or nasty. So I have to create sister situations where she can flourish. And my son wants a bit more of everything. He's playing a monk. He likes to be super powerful. He's a bit of a power gamer, but mm. he also wants to role play. So I have to create a storyline that suits how he foresees his character's arc in the long term of getting this revenge against the dragon that burned down his village. Fair enough. So how do I somehow coalesce these different goals into a functioning storyline? And it's interesting. I don't know if that, I'm not sure that I'm answering your question. Well, let, let me re-ask another question. Sure. Obviously, your son knows that you and I talk. Does he understand that me at boy age nine, you, you at man age 21, we played <laughs> games together we had this existing language. I mean, does he understand? I mean, certainly from my perspective, the the popular 1960s, my parents met at a Bob Dylan concert, right? So I have all this mysticism associated with these things. They did, literally. I'm, I'm here because of the Vietnam War. And what I find fascinating is that this creates the the background understanding of, you know, who my parents were in some sense, and that I can watch, you know, anti-war documentaries and i have a number of friends actually that are vietnam veterans which is quite curious of this country but these things frame my understanding of my parents early existence now with you at least through the way i know you aside from you know bob and helen and what have you role-playing was such a passion for you and so mm-hmm. intrinsic in who you were as a person uh, does your son have any understanding that this is a returning to you of something that is very familiar and very central to you know your prior existence? I think he must do on on some level. I'm not sure. You know, he's a he's a 13 year old about to turn 14 year old boy. He's very self obsessed, <laughs> right? Certainly. You know, it's it it's like if you'd asked me back then, you know, do you understand about your parents' uh, experiences in uh, in Canada and moving from country to country? And how that must that sense of dislocation may have affected them. I may have had to pause and, and then think about it, yeah. really. And and I'd probably come up with something articulate eventually, but it wouldn't dawn on me very much if I hadn't been asked. And I think the same is true of of Finn. So right? he doesn't he won't... see the reverence that you have as you hold these rules. He doesn't see that you have oh, yeah, a background gets... history to this. Oh sure, he gets that I, I used to play and everything, but I don't know that he gets that that it may have some emotional significance in that way you know I, i'd have to ask him but again it's uh 
Yeah, I'll get back to you on that one. I mean, for and example, I, when I sent you the miniature that you had passed on to me yeah, yes, two years right. ago, I, I, did I, I he understand that, that on some level? But, well, he, he must have because I kind of rabbited on a bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think he, he, he kind of got it. I mean, very hard to know what, what really goes on in my son's head sometimes uh-huh. and how much he gets some things. He's very perceptive, but at the same time, he's very self-absorbed. Yes. So, you know, his mind will quickly go back to the things that concern him rather than other people's emotional states. So, and, you know, I think it's very typical of the age. Well, let me ask another question. Certainly when I was in my teenage years, the parents, the other parents, the parents that I knew out in the wild that I hung on to had connections to computers. And I would either feign learning to program with them because most of the time I actually knew the programming languages that they were trying to you know, teach their children. I was just there as a participant to get active screen time and write my own code. But, you know, there were relationships that I had with adult parents, which were very much based on my specific interests. In terms of your role as the GM, in terms of your parental role, but also his friends kind of cottoning onto this experience, can you describe that in terms of a broader kind of role-playing education? Hmm. I think one of the things is most that's, that's uh, going to be different is that for me, there was only role playing and board gaming, and there wasn't much board game, of course, because it was in its it was really in its infancy still then. Whereas for him and for them, in uh, their world is based around more about computer games. And when they have a podcast in their forties, in another thirty years' time, <laughs> it will be called My Computer Game Rules, and they won't be looking at at nostalgically at at RPGs and yes. the role-playing experience, it'll be out all the great games that the kids no longer play and don't understand. Yes. So, you know, it's, I don't think it could possibly be as big in his life as it is in mine, even though he's enjoying it, but, because he's so wrapped up in the world of computer games. Certainly, but within that context, mm. and I mean, it's interesting that you normally do it on a Sunday as well. We'll move that little thing aside. But the significance that this has to you and your ability to communicate mm. that, not just to your son, but a group of your son's friends as well, to present to them something which is very, in particular, I mean, historically, as you describe, creating, you know, power dungeons with uh, all kinds of <laughs> demigods and things behind every corner, and, of course, piles and piles of gold and gems and a wide variety of other things. I mean, these things are typically instrumental early on in the creation. But also, let me ask you another question. I have a friend at work whose nine-year-old son is GMing a group that my co-worker is participating in. Nice. To see the experience and also to take his own. I'm not sure whether he's ever GMed previously either. So it could be just that his son is, is fulfilling a role that he has never personally done himself. We haven't talked that much about it. But I did talk about it in the context of what I tried to do at the game at work, associated with pulling out various archetypes and as you say, mm. creating the best possible experience for the collective players. So do you, do you foresee at some stage that your son will GM the group? Well, I really want him to, and I hope that he does. My particular case comes from uh, my, my understanding of him and my experience with him. And this may seem like a terrible criticism, and maybe some of the parents, if there are any other parents listening, they may think that I've made the wrong decision. But my particular son is very, very uh, impetuous. He doesn't want 
he wants to he doesn't want to run before he walks he wants to be entered into um the olympic 100 meters before he even learns to walk right it's and then it doesn't go according to plan because he doesn't want to put in the effort to to practice and to get there and then it's upsetting for him and he abandons it and so because i don't want to see him have yet another thing that he will consider a failure and because i want the role playing experience to be good and this is where it comes into the background my own personal background with it i have i took time to steer him away from being a gm first time with you with your ability your determination your capacity to read and explore and do the background research that's required early gming was probably a great success and i doubt no doubt the same for your colleague but i've seen it too often with my son that it works out exactly the opposite so and in the end i think he sees that and he gets that but hopefully he'll be ready to be able to be that gm you know in a few more sessions and in fact now that you ask it i think the very next session we play because a story arc is coming to an end very soon i'll make it clear to the others that i'd be really happy to be just the player if they want to run adventures it Thank sounds you. it sounds like the murder hobo character might also be an interesting gm as well i mean almost it could be a cyclical thing as well i think what you describe associated with them getting together the rule books these kind of things sounds incredibly immersive and i don't want to say that you're being heavy-handed here at all because i think you clearly have your reasons as stated but it sounds like his exploration is deeper even initially than just something that would have been precursory and i think what's interesting here is i had a discussion with you associated with the nature of complexity and depth and fascination and these kind of qualities and i think it sounds like even prior to your gming your son was starting this exploration and obviously he has made a commitment he has made a social commitment to this thing as well which i find really very interesting because certainly with me the no you were my oldest the oldest person i knew to actually take an interest in these things early on i think without question you were someone who was very important in my life and while i joked about you chastising me through this you're someone who when you got back in contact with me that to for the benefit of the listeners i have not spoken to matthew for 30 plus years you went to canada pretty soon after i knew mm. you and we lost contact i said we might have had a fumble email communication at some point but just by chance because i have a lot of love for uh, helen in adelaide i you know every time i go to adelaide i have to spend time with helen and michelle was tagging along and we spent a wonderful afternoon and evening with helen in particular made sure that she ate a full meal and did all these important important things that one has to do with folks as they are getting a little older sometimes and had a really nice time and in the process passed on my cell phone number which i think i had done just through organizing getting together with her and i'm not sure the nature of your interaction with her how you got my cell phone number but that has actually created this thing here it's fascinating the notion of generational hierarchy and importance although you weren't my parents you were like a parental figure in some regard and had a solid impact on me I and mean, i carried around that miniature for quite some time so just based on that so i think this is incredibly important in terms of the interaction but the nature of making mistakes through this and learning from the mistakes i think is something that i wouldn't want to remove from the experience so if i seem a little concerned associated with 
But I guess what happens is you now, as you say, have an ability to pass on the GM ship to, to someone else, just potentially mm-hmm. or his friends. And through that interaction, you can continue to observe. But the fact that this is something, I mean, you mentioned a, a, a boy who, you know, has kind of wandered away from the game. But the fact that your son and his two friends still do this thing seems to indicate that it has a certain degree of narrative importance. And, you know, the, the murder hobo plan <laughs> seems to get a lot out of this thing as well. I mean, the whole kind of role-playing catharsis seems to come through this as well. Maybe future characters Indeed. will be different. But I think the importance of this thing as not being a computer game and actually being a social thing which has gen- generational you know, influence I find really fascinating, and certainly, yeah, this is a topic that I'd like to return to with you, potentially as your son or other ones of his friends, GM. In terms of taking the experiences that you had, obviously you identified some bad ones that you don't want them to have, but what do you reflect on as being good ones that you have tried to instill through the game? Okay, well, one is definitely the just the social aspect. It has to work that way, right? We can't just come together to roll some dice and compare some numbers. Mm. That's, it's not what I'm looking for at all. And I, I don't, and if, and if initially, occasionally some people are looking for that, it pulls pretty quickly. One of the reasons the girls keep coming along, I think, is that we have a good time. We make, we, we laugh a lot and we have a lot of great stuff to eat. <laughs> I, and I can't tell you, I mean, I, I, I would probably be embarrassed to think about the amount of Cadbury's dairy milk chocolate we went through uh-huh. in, my, in my youth on <laughs> D&D sessions that went from, you know, six at night till two in the morning. Everyone would bring along a family block Gosh. and there weren't, there weren't many pieces left, right? Gosh. Hard Didn't drugs. that take you back? Yeah, hard drugs. That's right. All that sugar. So, you know, and so I make monkey bread and I make a variety of different treats and, and now, uh, one of the girls is bringing something of her own that she always bakes, uh, likes to bake up. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of chips and there's a lot of pop and all that kind of stuff. And it's all great. Right. Um, so it's becoming more of a, almost as much more of a, about a social ritual of getting together, uh, a, a junk food potluck as it is about the game. And much like the way the rules is just a, a structure to hang the adventure on, mm-hmm. the adventure is a structure to hang the socialization on. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Finn has been um, with the same group of kids for eight or nine years mm. because they're in a, a language immersion program and that's uh, limited class uh, kid numbers, right? So uh, the, um, the same cohort has been together since senior kindergarten mm. and they're now in grade eight. So that's a lot of schooling together year in, year out. And they don't always, you know, they don't always get along, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Finn doesn't spend a lot of time with them necessarily day to day because they're girls and at a certain point things start to bifurcate. So the girl who plays the dwarf, dwarf druid, you know, the, she and Finn don't necessarily have a lot to do with each other on a day to day basis except in classwork, right? Mm. But then they come together on the weekend and they get on really well, right? But then uh, uh, with the other girl who is the, uh, the psychopath, right? <laughs> Whose, whose character is the psychopath? She yes. plays um, a cat human. Right. Uh, anthropo-feline. Very good. Ass- assassin. Of course. And uh, who doesn't like water and 
kills birds on sight. Very good. And she and my son bicker and bicker and bicker and bicker, right? And always putting each other down, but they still get together and have a lot of laughs when we're playing D&D. Yes. So it's interesting how it provides a different social context for them. And I really like that. I like that if you're anyone's to learn anything about me if my son remembers one thing about his dad when i'm long gone from the world and he talks to his grandkids or his kids or his grandkids about his dad i hope that what he says is he liked to make experiences for others yes and so D is that thing where yes i enjoy their company but i i'm really excited to make a memorable experience for them because they Look back on this on this great time where they, they had a male friend and they went around to the house and they ate great food and they had lots of laughs and they rolled a bunch of dice around and they don't they maybe they can't remember a single thing about the adventures, but it was a blast. Let me ask you a more difficult question. When do you foresee it as your responsibility to leave this game and let them continue to play without you? Oh Tom, don't you get that's that's whew. It's like asking me, like, how am I going to feel when my son leaves home or something? Uh, but at some point, obviously, some point, this thing has to evolve, right? Yeah, I know. They're going to they're gonna not want to. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's such a gift to be able to spend time with these two girls, for example. Yes. I really like them. They're, they're, they're great people. I get to know them. And they're going to hit 15, and they're not going to want to do that anymore with this old guy, right? And even if they continue playing D&D, you're right. I, I'm not going to be part of the group. Somehow that will happen either because I'll say, you know, you guys play on your own, have a good time. And I will, uh, I will miss it terribly. I will be sad to say, to say goodbye to that and let them go, but it will have to happen. Hmm. Moving on to happier things. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about this board game. Give it, give it the elevator pitch. What, what is this board game about? Okay. I gotta, I gotta make an apology for you first, because in one of your earlier um, podcasts, you were talking about how you didn't like the trope about the greenskins always being portrayed a certain way. Mm. And my game portrays the greenskins in a very traditional manner. Oh, in terms of like animosity and just chaos and these kind of things? That's right. These are, these are, these are very, very archetypal goblins. So my son, he turned to me one day. I said, look, I, uh, maybe we can make a, make a board game together sometime. And, uh, and I said, well, what would you like to see a board game on? And he thought about it for a moment. He said, Raiding goblins. Mm. So, okay, I'll make a goblin raiding game. So the game is very meant to be very humorous. Okay. The, the cards, the descriptions, the, the goblins as characters are meant to be funny. Right. right? But it's also meant to be a game where uh, it's structured around uh, three different kind of raiding seasons where the, 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 the head goblin sends out raiding parties and everybody around the table is part of one raiding party. Uh. So it's a semi semi cooperative game, sort of, but they're goblins and they only cooperate to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they go off and they fight these human cities, which get tougher and tougher each round, and the further and further they go into the human territory, and they try and get as much loot as they can, and they bring it back. And then they have to give some to the high goblin. Mm-hmm. The, more, the more they give, the more prestige they have. But they also get, earn prestige by keeping more for themselves and becoming rich and famous. And they have to have to pay off their troops. So that's the kind of structure of the game. And what's interesting for me is I'm I'm very very I'm stuck in one very critical area, mm. and it's about the tension between mechanic driven Euro gaming, 
and theme-driven Ameritrash gaming. Of course. And so I have, I have a, I have a, this is theme-driven game, right? Ben turns to me and he says, uh, I want a game on Goblin Raiding. So I don't have any mechanics, right, or mechanisms at this point. Mm. I just have a story. So I develop the mechanisms to make the story work. There's one critical part of the game, for me is very critical, is that the players, you know, they, 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 they ransack these towns, right? They, they defeat the defenders, and then they loot the place. Mm-hmm. Okay, great fun. So I want some kind of loot system, because it's going to be one of the cruxes of the game, about the treasure you get to keep, and the stuff that you decide to give to the High King, mm. and the stuff you decide to keep for yourself. Mm. Because I want that, it, it can't just be, even though the theme says to me, the biggest, toughest goblin should get the, fir- the chief pickings, that's not going to work as a mechanism. It's not going to work as a game where everyone's getting some stuff and it's kind of secretive, so what you, what you have, the others might not know about. So how can I create that, uh, a system that works as a mechanism, but doesn't contradict the feeling of the game? And I am stuck there. And I'm stuck because I, not really because I can't work out, well, I guess because I can't work out the right mechanism, but also because I can't bring myself to use the mechanism that I know will work because it contradicts my theme. Can I offer a possibility here? Oh, yes. The King Goblin is not a player currently. Correct, he's not a player. So if the King Goblin becomes a player, but does not participate in the raiding party, but has other responsibilities, and then the raiders have the opportunity to either knock off or become the King Goblin themselves through some mechanic. Then you have a distinction of play styles, which I think might be interesting. The notion that there's a higher power that, you know, Tyth needs to be paid to is useful. But if you have a slightly destabilizing mechanic in there, namely that one of the players is the King Goblin, but other players can become the King Goblin through some mechanic, then you have something which is slightly more volatile and creates shifting and different alliances like the the player that was formerly the king goblin for example has a circumstance where they had the option of either playing the game and amassing their own loots in some regard or being you know the returning king another dynamic which i've never seen played out but could happen particularly as you describe as seasons is the potential now with goblins they're fungusoids right they're created from mushrooms fundamentally or at least certainly That's my preferred narrative associated with goblins. But they may have kin and, and, you know, local mushroom patch children and these kind of things. You could have multi-generational, a multi-generational arc in this as well, if you wanted it to be played over days as opposed to an evening. So let's continue. It's interesting that you you, you say that about uh, the the Goblin King and uh, taking over that position because... That's one of the expansions I'd hoped for was one where not only could players just, you know, they, they play, you play you through seasons. It's mostly a card based game and, and you play it out and you can win, but you could also in the expansion become a goblin king as an extra path to victory, throw in some more cards, that kind of thing. So, so it's a solely card based game. There's no board to it. Uh, there was originally, and I realized it was not the game I was looking for Ah. because this is another thing. I guess it speaks to again to who I am. Is is I didn't want to just create when I when I imagine the game. What I imagine is the people sitting around the table playing it, mm. and I don't want it just to be a, a a board game which is which could be picked up by traditional gamers and enjoyed. But I want it to be accessible enough 
for people who also play games like Catan. Mm. So they've got the the humor has to be there to 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 get people laughing because goblins can be innately hilarious. Um, I, th- I mean, I think I take a lot of the inspiration here from the way Magic the Gathering does goblins, right? Mm. I want a game which is has interaction and is light enough to be accessible. The original game, the players began by building a map of a particular city using hexes, and each round was instead attacking the same city, and each turn it might get a bit tougher. And it was fine, and I could see that it would work, but it would be a more stodgy, drawn-out game than I was looking for. It wasn't the experience I wanted to be able to provide to other people. Uh, So, And because I know my son loves card-based games, I decided to abandon the map approach, which can be rich, but can also be constraining and go just for, you know, kind of a card based game. There are many decks of cards. There's the decks, uh, the deck of uh, Goblin Recruits. There's the loot deck. Mm-hmm. There's whenever you, as you go to the next town to, you know, you generate a new town and it's going to have certain random elements, right? Tougher or weaker defenders, better loot, less loot, that kind of thing. So there isn't a simple one deck of cards. And there are player pads, you know, this is this kind of like, you know, a, a cardboard thing where that shows you who you are, your goblin raider, your your humorous picture and your your asymmetrical ability. And then space for you to put all your, you know, your how much loot you've got and blah, 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 right? But no map, no. So let's talk about the conflict aspect of this, particularly the interplayer conflict. Because you mentioned that that was the trope that you were looking for, or at least that I had talked against, but you were looking for in this game. How does that play out? So the um, not a, I have to say I'm not really a fan of cooperative games. Hmm. I think they're a good idea, and uh, I have I, I ran um for for my school I, I, I where my where my son goes I um I've been for many years uh, the uh, chair of the school council and I've arranged various courses and things for parents. And one of the things I wanted to do was was to, to run a course on on encouraging leadership in kids because it's not something that's usually dealt with. And um, I ended up being one of the presenters. And what I said to everyone was, is I want you to have a think about cooperative board games as a way to encourage leadership in kids. Because for better or worse, one of the things that happens in cooperative games is a personality game rather than a game necessarily about the technical aspects of winning or something right and how people come out and express their ideas and show various kinds of leadership so with kids i think it's it can be a very interesting teaching tool that way but they're not strictly a gaming experience i like all that much because it comes ends up being about which personality around the table ends up being stronger but i like the idea that everyone that the goblins it speaks to the goblin theme of we're all cooperating, but we're all out for ourselves, right? We, we've got to, we're not going to be able to conquer the, this, this, this town, this village on our own. We'll have to work together, but I want the best loot and I want the most glory. So to make that semi-cooperative, semi-conflict game was, was part of my goal. And, uh, as yet to see, because I, because I'm stuck in this, in one aspect of the game, I'm not sure if it works or not. I'll have to let you know. Hmm. Please do. Please do. The nature of removing the map and adding the conflict associated with purely card-based dynamics, I like that in terms of just moving it out of a spatial thing and making it more randomized in a way which is not necessarily visual or even exposed to the players. So that works very well in that circumstance. 
I think the thing that interests me is not necessarily cooperative games, but political games. We hear meaning diplomacy, backstabbing, all these kind of things. And it sounds like this is what you're hinting towards here. Well, you know, I I was a big diplomacy player back in the day. In fact, I organized the second or third World Diplomacy Championships. I used to run a diplomacy uh, magazine. And, you know, I played I played a lot of that game. So uh, uh, I, I I do like having aspects of that, even though there I know there are people out there who despise diplomacy and understand why. I'm I promise you, I'm not trying to create diplomacy light or diplomacy involving goblins, but that bringing in some aspect of that uh, is key for me in in creating a successful game. I think, or at least being true to my uh, to my kind of vision of it. Hmm. Well, to be continued, no doubt, Matthew, to be continued. Sure, yeah. And I'm sure that there's many people uh, who are listening who have probably have designed their own games or thought about game, game design, and they're probably all nodding their heads in recognition of some <laughs> aspects of that. Or even if they think about the games that they like and the ones that they don't like and why, some of those issues are, are always in there. You know, this this game is a great idea, but it was too... It was it felt soulless, you know, because it was too much about the mechanics. Or this game could have been so good, but it was bogged down by its theme, and it was, we, you know, it was it was too too theme dependent, too heavy because of it. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you again, Matthew. This time next week, I'm going to be settling my head in a little English village where I hope to end my days, but exploring <laughs> it once again. And in terms of this particular podcast, the real hajj that I'm paying on this trip is to Orcs Nest Games in central London. Indeed, I'm, I'm jealous. And uh, if you let me know a T-shirt size, I might get you an Orcs Nest T-shirt because they <laughs> definitely want to own. <laughs> you know, I used to go there too because I, I lived in London for a time and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'd go down there to, uh, I don't know, to, uh, I didn't have any money. I just looked around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a fascinating. I mean, it is it is a unique store in its reverence to a time well past but nonetheless that there are still games that fit within its particular existence and yes i'm definitely going to uh, spend some quality time there and yeah my 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 current orcs nest t-shirt purchased i'm embarrassed to say probably maybe nine years ago now is almost threadbare so i need to find myself a replacement to it but yeah just an amazing point of Hajj that one needs to pay when one goes to London. Matthew? Well, I hope you have a great time. Yes. And, uh, and I hope the weather isn't too bad. It's going to be bad. I'm looking forward to it being bad, actually, <laughs> you see. <laughs> All right, then. And well, yes, thanks for we the pleasure, to, as always. And, we will uh, need to generate some more topics and uh, get together once again when I'm back and uh, talk about stuff deep and meaningful. Here's what, here's what I promise to do as a bit of homework. Okay. I'm, I'm going to try and find a way at the next session with the, uh, with the kids to... Uh, to get a see if they can articulate what it is they're looking for from D and D as an experience, mm. it, it can be tricky sometimes with young people getting uh, putting them on the spot and getting them to find the right words or to think about things. But uh, I may have some I may have some insights for you. Very good. Looking forward to that, Matthew. Talk to okay. you soon. Take care. Take care, Tom. <laughs>